Happy to have you aboard here for the really big barbecue show. Boing. We cook because we have to, and we grill because we want to. Hit me. Fine, I just want. <laughs> you have a great show, I'm a big fan. Boing. So what 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 seems to be the problem here? This man looks like he's dead and he's in the in the crackle. Charbono. It's all about the Charbono, dude. Succulent fish. What? He ate two feet wiener. So listen, Lavernius, shut your face. I'm shaking like a dog shit peach seed. <laughs> we have top men working on it right now. Top men. All right, just like that, we are into the second hour. Welcome aboard. You missed the first hour. You missed Myra Mixon. You missed the Bill Oakley. Iron hasn't been on in two years. Bill Oakley was a first-time guest. You can get all that podcast form starting tomorrow for the first hour, second hour on Thursday. So to come on the show this evening, Susie Bullock from Hay Grill Hay in about six minutes from now. Boing. And don't forget, you can follow me socially, of course, at BBQ Central Show on Instagram and Twitter and TikTok and Snappy Snaps slash BBQ Central Show on Facebook and Twitch for a video feed. Also, slash RD Rempy over on the tubes. Coming up on the best moments of the Barbecue Central show in 10 minutes or less this coming Friday, episode 177, brought to you by executive producer John Solberg, bringing you back to May 24th, 2016, featuring Travis Clark from Clark Crew Barbecue. In that episode, we talked about how the 2016 season went for him at that time. And during this time, he was coming off his third contest win in a row, and we talked about how the season was tracking and what he was looking to do for the balance of 2016. Uh, the year prior, he had won Team of the Year and said in 2016 it was absolutely not going to run for a back-to-back Team of the Year. So if you are not aware of Travis or you would like to hear him, make sure that you are subscribed to the podcast feed, and you will get it on Friday morning. Don't forget, if you have a guest or segment you would like to hear again, email John and tell him you'd like to do it. He'll put one together for you. John, J-O-N, at the bbqcentralshow.com. All right, so we talked with the winner of Memphis in May overall. First hour, Jack's Old South's pitmaster, Myron Mixon. If you don't know the awards themselves, let me go ahead and run through them quickly for you. Uh, of course, overall, Jacks Old South, as we had mentioned, Whole Hog, as I had mentioned also in the first hour, Jacks Old South, Winning Hog. Then you had Hometown, BBQ, Yazoo's, Delta Q, Smoke Master Championship, a barbecue team, and fifth was the Beached Pig. Shoulder results, Blues Hog. That's an interesting story. I think I might have to have Tim and uh, Brad or at least one or one or the other of them on to talk about it because they are traditionally KCBS cooks only. And this was their first Memphis in May. This was also uh, cooking as a team, I think. And the first time they had ever done whole shoulders, they do Boston butts at KCBS. So this was the first time they did whole shoulders. And then, of course, they end up winning the shoulder category. Uh, Mexico barbecue team second. People's Republic of Swina was third. Fourth was Southern Hoggers Barbecue Company, and fifth was Cool Smoke. Uh, with the year off last year in 2020, uh, Tuffy Stone was the winner in 2019, so he does not repeat, obviously. 
And in the Rids category, you had winning at Bluff City Smokers, smoking on the River Second, soused by noon third, Bambi Q fourth, and my Swine Championship barbecue team was fifth. I will give a special mention to first Tuesday of the month regular guest and pitmaster of Killer Hogs barbecue team Malcolm Reed for sixth overall. Unless there's another Killer Hogs that I'm not aware of, but I believe that's Malcolm's team. We'll find out in his podcast on Friday. And then there were some other ancillary categories that uh, you can look for over on the MemphisMay.org website if you are so inclined. We mentioned them with Myron. Let me go ahead. If you're just tuning in and you're not familiar with the release of the final names of the Barbecue Hall of Fame that was done this past Wednesday as an exclusive stream with Emily Park over there at the American Royal, the manager of events at the World Series of Barbecue. So there's six names on this list that have been on at least once before last year. There's one that has been on now for his third time in a row. So uh, one of the second timers is Bill Arnold, who's famously known for Blues Hog Barbecue. A first timer on the list is Ollie Gates from Gates Barbecue there in Kansas City. A third timer on the list in a row, Meathead from AmazingRibs.com. Another second timer in a row is John Marcus. Of course, you know him from Barbecue Pitmasters and other TV shows that he has done. He did a short film uh, called Barbecue Oh, jeez. Barbecue Pitmaster. Oh, but well, there's barbecue in the name, and Kuwait is in the name. Johnny Trigg and Tuffy Stone and a couple other cooks went over. I think it's the Kings of Barbecue, Barbecue Kuwait. I knew I could do it. I did it. So he's done a number of TV movie stuff for barbecue. Ed Mitchell is a first-timer. Of course, you would know him from a restaurant called The Pit uh, that he has uh, summarily walked away from, and he's now at a new restaurant that he's teamed up with with the son. Uh, Rodney Scott is a second-timer. Joe Traeger, first-timer. You ever heard of Joe Traeger? He created uh, Traeger Pellet Cookers. I could share a completely funny story about the name Joe Traeger, but it's not going to be worthwhile for me to do it. Darren Worth from Iowa Smoky D's is also on the list for the second year in a row and also rounding out the list and on for a second year in a row, Leanne Whippin. So a accomplished list to say the least. I'm not going to weigh in on any of that here this evening because we will save that for the embedded correspondence next month before we get to season two of American Idol Barbecue Central Show Edition, which will take place in the second portion of the second hour next week. But we'll do a lot of Barbecue Hall of Fame talk. We'll give you our picks and then see how wrong we are again. Before we get to Susie, I'll talk to you quickly about Yoder Smokers. Yoder Smokers designs and builds all of their products in the United States and building pride through craftsmanship and world-class customer service. That's the backbone of how the company has been made. This approach translates into what can truly be a bespoke-style product that elevates gatherings with friends and family and honored to have that trust placed in the backyards of America. Pellet grills to wood-filed offset pits and charcoal grills, consistent blue ribbon flavor has become synonymous with the Yoder Smoker's name. Make no mistake, Yoder Smoker's flavor-driven design is unique to each style of pit. 
And the team has developed their cookers to perform time and time again while outlasting the competition for generations to come. It's this generational thought that is rooted in their handmade products and defines the integrity of their core values. American-made quality and endless flavor, the benchmarks of Yoder Smokers. Go to the website, yodersmokers.com, and grab yours today. Whether you like the pellet cookers, whether you like the offset, or just the charcoal grills, they got them all there, yodersmokers.com. We are back with Susie Bullock from Hey Grill Hey. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to the number one most downloaded barbecue and grilling podcast anywhere. The Barbecue Central Show. Howard Stern, Jim Rome, Dan Patrick, and Greg Rampey. The Mountain Rushmore of talk show entertainment. Now, let's get back to the Barbecue Central Show. And this portion being brought to you by the Pit Barrel Cooker, the most unbelievable outdoor cooking device on the planet, currently available in two sizes with a host of accessories. Whether you are a beginner or a professional, definitely cooker you want to add to the arsenal, visit pitbarrelcooker.com and tell them the Barbecue Central Show sent you. Hey, we had a new quarterly guest rolling in here, but she's not new to the show. She is friend of the show, creator of Hey Grill Hey, Susie Bullock. Hey, Susie. Hello, hello. How are you? I'm fantastic. How are you? have that fresh from Memphis in May look about you. The tired, smoke-riddled. (laughs) I still smell like hog. Pulling it off. It's a good time. Pulling it off without a doubt. Thank you. All right. So uh, we were sound checking and I was like to you and Todd, you know, what was the uh, motivating factor to go out to Memphis in May? Is it like a recurring thing or what? So what's your history, if any, with Memphis in May? Uh, None prior to this year, actually. Um, I mean, most people that follow us know we don't really do a lot in the barbecue competition scene. We spend most of our time I mean, at least for me, I want to develop recipes for the backyard cook, the home cook, because most people aren't cooking competition style food for their families. Generally, competition food is very labor intensive, very intense flavor profiles, and that's not something you want to eat a ton of. It's designed to be one bite barbecue. So I I spend most of my time developing recipes for the home cook and the backyard enthusiast. So competition hasn't really been on my radar, but... Uh, when Carrie Bringle texts and says, hey, do you want to come cook against me at Memphis in May? You say, yes, sir. <laughs> well, I would say hell no and hang up the phone, but I guess that's why you're a competitor and <laughs> I'm kind of a weakling. But. I mean, I I met Carrie Bringle for the first time I ever met him was as a competitor, was cooking against him on Barbecue Brawl with right. Bobby Flay and Michael Simon a couple years ago. And, you know, that's where Carrie and I linked up initially and we hit it off and he is so fantastic We ended up in Nashville on a road trip in September, and he was so kind to bring my whole family on a tour of his restaurant and show us the pits. And, you know, my kids, my son left with a quart container of Carrie's barbecue sauce because he said it was better than mine. So Carrie, like, loaded him up and saran wrapped a quart of barbecue sauce for my son to take on the road. And uh, that kind of, you know, barbecue family is one of the things that I love the most about the barbecue community. And uh, so getting a chance to to go back to Tennessee and to spend some time with uh, Carrie. And 
actually cook against him again was something I couldn't turn down. And to make it even sweeter, the team that I cooked on in Memphis in May was headed up by Carrie's wife, Delania Bringle. And so it was kind of a husband against wife uh, situation. And they were actually the only all-female whole hog team at Memphis in May. So I got to cook on that team and it was a phenomenal experience. So for me, the motivating factor was just, you know, being a part of that barbecue community and the ambiance and that family atmosphere that I think a lot of us have really missed over the last year or so. Did you hear a lot of that talk about, we didn't realize, Byron had referenced it in the first hour that he had been going to Memphis and May since 96, I think he said, and then not going last year made him realize that it wasn't getting old for him, he said. I mean, he's done a lot of winning there as well. He's won now five yeah. world titles and six hog championship oh titles gosh. as well. So, I mean, he goes Amazing. and wins quite a bit. But, I, I mean, it, <laughs> in his voice, it sounded like it's like a little bit of a grind. I mean, Memphis in May is its own monster anyway, as you saw Work. firsthand in person. It's very expensive, all this yep. other stuff. So, for him to say having that year off actually helped make me realize what a special event this is. Did you hear a lot of the similar sentiments? Yeah, I think everybody was just, it is, it's work and it's expense. And, you know, I had somebody uh, comment to me that in prior years, people could recoup the cost of their tents through sponsorships or selling tickets to events. Um, there was none of that this year. And so the teams that were there were teams that really put out cash to be there because they wanted to be there. And so I think it meant a lot to everybody to be there. Everyone that was there really wanted to and was really invested in that experience and in the community. And uh, I do think the overall sentiment was, you know, just gratitude and and it was happy. It was such a happy time and everybody was in a good mood. And, you know, the barbecue community is amazing anyway. Um, but just to see everybody pull for each other and, you know, finals are called to see who the final three are. And one team starts cheering and it's like everybody starts cheering for that team because they made it, <laughs> even though that meant that we didn't. Yeah. Like we were just so excited for everyone to be, you know, experiencing that moment at Memphis in May. And it was just fantastic. It was so fun. I loved it. Would there ever be an interest in putting together some kind of ringer, hay grill, hay team to go back to Memphis <laughs> at some point and, and give it a whirl or just yes. no way? <laughs> Honestly, yes. I mean, I have said for years, I don't compete. I don't want to do competition barbecue, but I really think like there is some magic fairy dust at Memphis in May because it even like turned my cold, dead anti-competition heart a little bit. And I was like, dang it, this is fun. And, you know, I competed, I entered four ancillary categories for our team and I helped with the hog and I didn't even like walk, but I was like, I, sh I could, I think I could do this. <laughs> so I told Donima, sorry about the trailer we're going to buy a new smoker. <laughs> and uh, so I don't know. I don't know if it'll be in the next, I, I certainly don't think it'll be in the next year or so, but I can definitely see down the line, um, you know, putting some some time and effort behind a competition barbecue team because darn it, it was so fun. <laughs> yeah, Susie Bullock joining us here from Hey Grill Hey, the website heygrillhay.com and you can follow Susie over on social media as well at Hey Grill Hey. Uh, so do you think it would be worthwhile going back next year to see what would I assume would be a full-blown Memphis and May to see how much different it can be, believe it or not? 
Oh, totally. Yeah, I would totally go back. And everyone that had been there before said, because this was my first Memphis in May. So I didn't get the full experience, according to everyone that I talked to that had been there in years past. They were like, oh, this is nothing. <laughs> like This is so mild compared to, you know, the hordes of people that are typically here and the volume and the pace. So I definitely want to go to another one and see, you know, maybe maybe I can't actually hang at Memphis in May. <laughs> When it's full blown. So we'll see. All right. So uh, that's the Memphis of May recap. And appreciate you uh, letting us into how you saw it there for those of us that couldn't make it. And let's transition over a little bit to talk about what I refer to as the business of barbecue. I mean, certainly we know you as somebody that's on camera doing videos, as you said, uh, mainly geared to the backyarders. But you know, every once yeah. in a while, there's one of us that really gets into this deal and we make our own homemade sauce or we're inspired trying one of your rub recipes or trying somebody else's rub recipes through a cookbook and then throwing some of our own stuff in there, making it our own and throwing it around. And people are like, oh, great. That's really good. You should sell that. And uh, you want to help me do that? No. Well, no, but boy, you could sell that. And, you know, <laughs> but so you should. I've done this long <laughs> enough to realize there are a number of inherent risks of the business of barbecue. And for the past five months, actually, we've been tracking Meathead's progress as he is currently in the middle of bringing three rubs to market. At some point, he's going to be bringing, it was like two or three sauces to market as well, but those appear to be lost at sea at this point. And he refused to consult with me (laughs) on how to ask the best business questions in that regard, but I digress. So I thought it'd be interesting to get your side of it here, Susie, as somebody who is established and well-respected along come the rubs and sauces. So when did you decide or at what point did you decide that you wanted to start getting into this portion of the business, the rubs and sauces? Oh, geez. It was less like a decision and more like we got pulled into it a little bit almost. So uh, like you said, I, I geared toward recipes. So recipe development is my sweet spot. I love being in the kitchen. I love being outside by the grills and I love putting stuff together and combining ingredients and seeing how things taste and seeing how this works and trying different methods for cooking things. And, um, you know, one thing that we posted on our site after it took me a few years to really, I know it seems silly because it's just a barbecue seasoning and it's not super special, but, uh, it took, <laughs> it took me a couple of years to really dial it into where I wanted it. And that was actually one of my first really, uh, popular recipes on the website it brought quite a bit of traffic was my sweet rub. And I think one of the reasons that was the case is there just weren't a ton of people at the time posting their rub recipes online. Uh, you could find a few here and there. I know meat has been around and posting recipes like that for a long time. Um, but there just weren't a ton. I mean, I started Hey Grill Hey six years ago. And so I started posting all my recipes and people were making it and they were loving it. And the reviews were fantastic. And I was just happy people were visiting the website. Right. And then the comments started coming in pretty quickly. Hi, (laughs) I make about a gallon of this a month. Could you please just bottle it for me? Because I'm sick of buying the individual ingredients and taking the time to put it together myself. It would be super convenient if you just had it on the shelf and I could order it from your website or, you know, I could pick it up somewhere. That'd be great. And I brought this up to Todd and he said, hmm, no, Uh, because he had worked... Uh, Todd is my husband, by the way. I don't, I don't know. Not everybody knows that. He's usually behind the camera. We call him Taste Test Todd because nothing makes it on the website unless he approves. And the same thing was kind of 
proving to be true in the business space in terms of, you know, what avenues we were pursuing to build our business. And he came from a, an accounting background. He was actually a CPA and worked in public auditing. And he said, I have dealt with companies that have to manage inventory. And I'm telling you right now, you do not want a company where you have to manage inventory. <laughs> and I said, well, the people, the people want it, Todd. <laughs> like they really want it. So uh, it was a little bit of a push and pull kind of between, you know, our audience who was asking and me who thought it seemed like a very good idea. And Todd was running the numbers going, this is not smart. (laughs) This is not financially sound. Uh, So it took us about a year of kind of back and forth. And then we started looking a little bit more into it. And that that's kind of how we ended up in the game and things have kind of fallen like dominoes and we can talk about that process. That's how I ended up in the game was people asked. They wanted they wanted the seasonings in a bottle. So we figured out how to get it done. Easy enough. So once the year transpires and there's some type of an agreement made, the next logical step, you're not gonna you probably don't have a commercial kitchen at home where you're legally allowed to make stuff in bulk. So now you gotta go source what we call a co-packer in the industry. And I'm wondering how yep. long that took and what kind of a process was that like for you? So initially, we looked into what's called a cottage license because various states have different laws regarding what's called a cottage license. And that means that you can actually package at home without a commercial kitchen as long as there are disclosures on the label that this is a homemade product. It was not produced in a commercial facility. And Utah allows that for things like farmer's markets and selling out of your home, say if you bake cupcakes or something like that, or you have a home bakery. So that was what we looked into first. Um, We quickly realized that this would not serve our online audience because we would have to ship product over state lines. And license laws are local. They don't apply state to state. So that's when, like you said, we had to start looking for a co-packer. And we called several. We started Googling, first of all, like, local co-packing spices, Utah, like just (laughs) random combinations of words that we thought might lead us to a hit because a lot of times small businesses aren't particularly well optimized for SEO. So they're not going to show up uh, first thing when you Google. So when we first started looking, we were seeing bigger co-packers that were buying that ad space on top so that they would show up. And their minimum order quantities were like 10,000 units. And we could not justify, I mean, if it ends up being $3 a bottle to produce a large bottle of seasoning. That's a lot of cash out the gate um, that we didn't necessarily have. We We couldn't really pony up tens of thousands of dollars for a large order of seasoning when we didn't even know if we could sell 10. We had not tested um selling a food product to our audience prior to that our recipes are free we have like trained our people come to hay grill hay for free crap (laughs) and so training them to buy stuff i'm like i don't know if anybody's gonna buy this uh so we wanted to do a smaller run and we wanted to be able to test the concept so we kept searching and we actually found somebody in our neighborhood that owned a co-packing facility and he did not do seasonings. He actually co-packed uh, pharmaceutical products and he co-packed um, a couple other things, but he did, he had just landed a contract for like a vanilla company and was like, okay, I got my food certifications. <laughs> and he walked us through the process of, you know, sourcing spices and making sure the the recipes were 
the way that we wanted him to taste. And he was willing to do a small run for us because he was starting out too. And so it really did take like a couple months of digging and searching and the universe opened up and the sky landed in our lap. And it was absolutely like, it felt like the skies had parted (laughs) and, you know, an answer to a prayer almost. And so we were able to do uh, our three different seasonings that we launched with. And I think we just did 300 bottles of each just to see what would happen. And the price, the margins were terrible because we had to pay so much because we were buying things in small quantities. But I just wanted to know if we could sell any. And then I would have proof of concept to move forward with larger order order quantities, which would bring our margins down. And so we did. We launched them, I think, a week and a half before Christmas in 2018. Good time. And we sold out in 24 hours. Wow. All, all three. All flavors. All of them were gone in 24 hours. And so then Todd was like, yeah, okay, I'm in. <laughs> and at that point, you know, we had kind of proven the concept. And it was still not cheap to run those 300 bottles, but it was an investment that we could stomach. It was something that we felt was a, a good first step for us to take to see if this was something that we could do. And the labels that are on our products now, we like found some somebody that could make those labels for us. I think we paid a couple hundred dollars for the design. And I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know what we needed on there. We figured out how to put SKUs on a label and we figured out what nutrition facts were required on a label. And Google, we like to say we graduated from the University of Google because we didn't, (laughs) there's no school for this kind of stuff. When you're an entrepreneur, you figure it out as we go. And that's, that's what we did. So we learned a lot. And uh, yeah, our first, you know, those first labels are still on our bottle today, not for long, but it's, we've been taking small steps throughout the process. And now we're with a larger co-packer that is able to, you know, get us better prices on our materials because all they do is season. And so we have better product prices and we're able to do larger order quantities. And yeah, it, but it was incremental steps a little bit at a time. Did you re-interview the bigger companies then when you realized that, you know, the, the guy that you were with is good for the proof of concept, but now to really bump yep. up into the market, you're going to have to go to somebody else. Was it a complete re-interview yeah. process then? Um, he did our first couple runs for us. And then we were actually approached by a company who said, you know, this is what we do full time. Uh, they We sent them our ingredients list. They gave us a price breakdown. And we did look at a couple places and... Uh, and you know, we picked the one that seemed to suit us best. And there is a process also for development from taking your seasoning blends or your sauce blends from a home kitchen to a commercial production. It's, it's a very different process making things in large quantities versus making a small batch at home. So it is a testing process to make sure that the flavors are coming back right. And once we felt like we had dialed in our recipes and the flavors were hitting the way that we wanted them to, uh, then it was it was kind of an easy go ahead. But even that first order, that was a hard check to write, man. So <laughs> every what, time every time we reorder, it hurts a little bit. What's the process like then? So you send them the recipe. They send you back, I would assume, um, trials of what you sent them and in hopes that it tastes, I, I guess, either exactly the same or relatively the same. How many times did it go yeah. back and forth or was it a pretty quick hit? Um, I think my 
first batch took about three or four, <laughs> but we're actually releasing three or four times back and forth, um, sending samples and tweaking, oh, this is too much pepper. We need smaller pieces of rosemary. Um, you know, we want, you know, just different things. We want to cut back on the cayenne a little bit to really hit right because it's very interesting in addition to you know, producing things at volume and how different that is than producing it in your home kitchen, ingredients are different too. So stuff that I'm buying from my grocery store, I don't know how long that's been on the shelf. I don't know how fresh it is. Um, even cayenne peppers have different Scoville ratings, even though they're all cayenne pepper and the same with chili powder. Uh, so they might have a spicier cayenne than I have at home. And so even if they're following the ratios exactly, um, and they're putting exactly in what you tell them to put in, it could taste different based on the ingredients they have and where they source them from. So it is an important process to get that testing done. So finding a co-packer that's willing to walk through that process with you, I think is really important. And you know, one thing that I liked about my co-packer is they've always said, this is your baby and nobody knows what this is supposed to taste like better than you. We can make it and we can say, ooh, that tastes really good. Uh, but the reality is we don't know exactly how it's supposed to taste. So that's why that testing process is so important. I've talked to a number of folks as they're going through this particular part of the process. There ends up becoming hurdles where the co-packer is telling them, hey, we get that this is what you want to do, but if you do it like this, you're going to price yourself out of the market. Or it, it's the ingredients aren't always going to be as consistent and that means your product isn't always going to be consistent and people are going to be like, well, why does one bottle taste a little bit different than the last bottle that we got? Does your yeah. co-packer bring you through those uh, learning points and then also say, hey, instead of using XYZ ingredient, you can use this instead. It'll still give you the same kind of flavor, but maybe doesn't cost as much. That allows you to get to whatever price point that you're looking for and attain margin percentage that you're looking for. Do they take that time with you as well? I think a good co-packer will. And because, you know, your success is their success. <laughs> the more you sell, the better it is for them because the more frequently you're reordering. So a good co-packer is going to be a partner with you because they want your product to taste great. They want your product to be consistent. And you know, a lot of times I didn't go into this knowing what producing a commercial rub would take. I just knew what it took in my own kitchen. And so the information that I've learned through the process came a lot from my co-packer. And there are some times where I have put my foot down and said like, no, we're willing to lose a couple cents on each bottle to maintain the integrity of this particular ingredient. Um, and that's I think a good co-packer says that's fine too, because at the end of the day, they're my seasonings and my names on the bottle. And so I get I get to decide. And if that means I have to raise my prices or lower my, you know what I mean? Um, I've I've found that, you know, finding a good co-packer is is a partnership. And like I said, they want your products to sell. They want your products to be delicious and consistent so that you're selling a ton and then ordering more, because that's good for them too. Um so yeah, I think I think it's a good partnership and I think it's a good educational experience to go through that process. But I also think you as the creator ultimately have the final stamp on anything. And you get to say like if it's working or if it's not working. And if your co-packer is not listening, then it might be time to find another co-packer. 
because I, I do think it should be, I think you should have good back and forth and it should be educational. And I think good co-packers are going to listen to what you want out of your product. Let's talk <clears throat> finances for as, as much as you feel comfortable, because I think this is probably a really important <laughs> part for people that are looking to do this. Yeah. Much like uh, book writing these days, you know, 15 years ago, you could probably strike a pretty cool book writing deal, make a really good advance, make money at it. And fast yeah. forward to where we're at today. And a lot of people are doing books. It's not for money, really. It's just to continue to keep the brand pressed out there. Maybe you make a couple yeah. bucks, but it's not a money-making opportunity like it was. Similarly, I think people right. think when you get into the products retailing business, that at some point, maybe sooner than later, you're going to be finding all this magnificent wealth and private jets and so forth. So, <laughs> you know, holding your success aside, Susie, um, like what, I mean, what do you expect really? Like, I mean, are you in uh, on a first order, whatever? I, and it's different from co-packer to co-packer, whatever their minimums are. But, yeah. you know, are, are you in 10 yeah. grand? Are you in 12 grand? Are you in 15 grand uh, before you turn out to sell? Potentially. I mean, our first, no, our first order, because we were able to do such a small order quantity, it really wasn't that high. And Todd and I set a cap, said this is our budget and we have to find somebody that'll work with us within this budget. And so when we were able to break even on our first order and even make a little bit, we said, okay, there's a potential for this to be profitable as we scale. And so I do think it's important to prove the concept because I think you certainly can run headlong into a $25,000 order thinking that you know, your sauce and your seasoning is the absolute best thing to ever hit the market and then sell none. And that's a really terrifying prospect. And so we were very fortunate. We weren't building a brand around the products. We were offering products to complement an existing brand. And a lot of people don't have that benefit. Sometimes they want to do the rub and sauce, but they don't have a following built already. And so they're trying to essentially build parallel businesses, their online presence and their product company. And so it's definitely not a get rich quick overnight scenario. Even for us, you know, we have millions of Facebook followers. We have um, tens of thousands of YouTube subscribers and Instagram followers and whatever. Um, but even having that, we knew it was an inherent risk to get started and we knew it wouldn't be an instant success. For us, it felt like starting over almost. We were starting this rub and sauce company from scratch and we bootstrapped it the whole way. So we were fortunate to have you know, cash from Hay Grill Hay to make that first $5,000 payment or whatever it was to get that first order through. And then we kind of used the momentum from each order to kind of build and fill the next. And so we, I think we broke even our first year. We didn't lose money, but we didn't make money that first year of selling product because everything that we made, we put back into another order and put back into the next order and put back into the next order. And we've continued to do that. And so I do, I think it'll be a couple of years for us before well, I mean, from starting the business until now, this might be the first year, our third full year where we see a profit. And so it's definitely not a get rich quick scheme, but I do think there is a lot of potential for us to grow over the next several years. I mean, it sounds like the smart move is to A, realize that profit margin, especially your net, is going to be minimal. It's now a completely... Yeah 
oversaturated market. Everybody's got rubs. Everybody's got sauces. You go into the grocery yeah. store. There's a lot. There's a uh, half aisle on the grocery store now across from the bread that's all rubs and sauces that you never used to see there. But how exciting! Ago. Totally, it used to just be McCormick. That was yeah. all we had. Right? Yeah. I mean, it was or, or whatever the uh, the Amish folks were. You know, bringing that they were allowed to sell in, but that was it. Uh, you know, now it's a huge yeah, selection. Yeah, that really so, is it. I mean, it's it, there's definitely. So I, think, I think for that, it yeah, it is a tight market because there are so many people. But I think to me that just says it's possible that other people have broken out and that it's possible. So for us, um, one of our models is what's good for barbecue is good for us. The more people that are out there cooking the better. And maybe you have somebody in your audience that I don't have in mind that you can reach with your product or with your message about barbecue. And the more of us that are spreading that barbecue love and education and experience, the more it's like wildfire. The more people are going to get into it and the larger the market will be. And the more retail space barbecue seasonings and sauces can command than they previously could. Is it wise to immediately start trying to get in with brick and mortar places or actual physical retail spaces and not solely rely on online sales? I think it depends on your business model and your goals. So for us, we definitely make more direct to consumer. You're, you're not, your profit margins are not going to be as high selling to retail because you have to sell them at wholesale prices where we can sell direct to consumer at cost. And, you know, all we pay for is, you know, the, the packing and, fulfillment fees essentially above and beyond what it costs us to make it. So for us, direct to consumer is higher profit margins, but we also see a lot of potential for volume with retail partners and retail partners started reaching out to us from the beginning. As soon as people saw that we were selling rubs and sauces, I think a lot of people that follow us are, you know, they work in grocery stores, they work at barbecue stores, they patron barbecue stores, and they wanted our product close to them. So we were uh, we were lucky to have retail partners start reach out, reaching out to us early on. You know, Utah, out here we have Barbecue Pit Stop. They were the first ones to ever carry our product. And that's because that's where I shopped for barbecue stuff. So as soon as I had some, I walked in with a bottle and I said, how many do you guys need? <laughs> so retail for us, <laughs> retail for us was a part of the plan from the beginning because we see a lot of potential for our product because our brand is so targeted to the backyard barbecue enthusiast. We're not selling to competition teams. We're not, you know, we don't put MSG in our seasonings. We don't use liquid smoke or high fructose corn syrup. We're really focused on ingredients that are, uh, that are high quality and and geared toward the backyard cook versus the competition cook. So I think there is a lot of potential for us to continue to grow in retail. But that might not be the case for everybody that's developing seasonings. Maybe you're developing seasonings specifically for the competition circuit and a full retail program might not be in your best interest. So I think it just, uh, it, it depends on your goals and it depends on your business model. But I think uh, I think either work great all great information coming from Hay Grill Hay's creator, Susie Bullock, and you can find her over at haygrillhay.com. Susie, last question before I let you go this evening, and it has nothing to do with retail or business, but it has to do, <laughs> of course, with the Barbecue Hall of Fame. Yeah, that's right. Oh. So, <clears throat> as I had mentioned 50,000 times on the show next Wednesday, we're going to be doing an exclusive airing along with the folks over at the American Royal on revealing awesome. who will be in the Barbecue Hall of Fame or who will get inducted this year. Three of the 
nine finalists that I am about to reveal to you. I'm just wondering, out of these nine names, and no disrespect or shade or whatever the kids call it these days, on six other people that maybe you don't pick, but I'm just wondering, if you had a vote, who would you pick? And the names are Bill Arnold from Blues Hog, Ollie Gates from Gates Barbecue, Meathead Goldwyn from AmazingRibs.com, John Marcus, Ed Mitchell, Rodney Scott, Joe Traeger, Darren Worth, and Leanne Whippet. I assume you know all of them, but uh, if you need clarification, yes. I'm happy. Okay, good. So of those nine, who are your three? Uh, Leanne Whippen, because that lady can cook some barbecue. And I really think, for me personally, uh, and I mentioned this, I cooked against Leanne on Barbecue Brawl also. She beat me in the finale. Leanne paved the way for women like me to enter the base. And I don't know if I would have had the same level of confidence had I not seen her competing on Barbecue Pitmasters the first season, truly. <laughs> um, and so I think she was a way maker for females in the barbecue space and continues to be that. So I hope I hope that she gets in. Uh, I hope Meathead gets in because he is primarily a food writer and he writes about barbecue. And that, again, is a path that I'm on. And a lot of times that's not the recognition that you see in the barbecue world. It's it's competition in restaurants, right? And so to have somebody like Meathead become inducted into the Hall of Fame is really cool. And then I would say Rodney Scott because – he embodies a lot of what barbecue is to me. It was something that was handed down, you know, generation to generation, which is really fantastic. Uh, but he made it his own. He took his own path forward and he's opened restaurants and he's changed things to suit his own style. And I think there is a place in barbecue for reverence for where we've come from and personalization and, you know, alteration to what works now? Well, thank goodness somebody's giving me direct answers tonight. Myron Mixon backed right out. I mean, I was like, come on. He's the winningest man in barbecue. And he's like, I'm not telling you who I voted for. I was like, all right, Myron, nevertheless. So um, we get him from uh, Susie Bullock here, which I appreciate. All right, Susie. So that's it for me. Uh, anything to promote or tell us about here before I let you go and before we see you next quarter? Sure. Right now we are uh, face first in a full website redesign and we're actually those great fantastic labels that we did for a couple hundred dollars a few years ago are getting a facelift and we're rebranding the website to match so that'll all launch the first week in june we're also rolling out a new barbecue sauce with the line and later this summer we're rolling out two new seasonings so that's very exciting uh we have an app that's going to be launching when the website relaunches so people can download the app and access our recipes for free and i'm also going to be appearing on a food network show on june 21st that you guys should go check out very busy that's why they call her <laughs> hey grill hey and you can go over to heygrillhay.com follow her on social media at hey grill hey as well at Susie bullock Susie, really appreciate the time tonight and of course the incredibly insightful information you can thank todd for me as well because i know he was a big brain trust part yeah. of that whole thing as well so oh, pass yeah. my regards to him and we will see you again next quarter absolutely Thank you, Greg. You got it. There she is. Have a good night. Susie Bullock right there from HeyGrillHay.com in social medias at HeyGrillHay as well. All right. So let's go ahead and play a little catch up here. 
I mean, if you are into the sauce and the rubs or you're looking to do that, come on. What are you waiting for? Listen to everything that Susie said. She did it. And now, being very successful at it. So you can too if you listen to what she has. Follow the directions. Follow the great stuff there. Let me talk to you quickly about Primo before we come back and potentially give you a passage from the reference material. Primo Cooker's oval-shaped, right? It's different than the round stuff. It's oval-shaped. It's a patented oval design that offers true two-zone cooking. More than 60 cooking configurations are possible. They're made right here in the States. They have precision-controlled manufacturing, and they have the highest quality ceramics in these cookers. They have the new Easy Lift Hinge, which reduces force to lift the grill head by 70%. Or in other words, it turns a 35-pound lift into an 8-pound lift. Easy stuff. You don't have to be working out every day to lift the head of a Primo anymore. It's easy with a new Lift Hinge. Also, precision control top and bottom air controlling. Now it's got the numbers. One, two, three, four, five. Instead of two finger widths. Numbers on the top and the bottom, easy to use. You can retro those on your current Primo if you go to your dealer and pick them up. The website, primogrill.com. The Instagram, Primo Ceramic Grill. And the Facebook, Primo Ceramic Grills. And again, the website, Primo Grill, singular, primogrill.com. I got to get my hands on one. I can't wait to cook on a Primo Cooker ASAFP. All right, we have a little bit of an open. If you want to weigh in on the Susie Bullock conversation, you're more than welcome to do that. 216-220-0966. And we will also give away some free stuff here in just one second. So stick around. We'll be right back. Where we give stuff away, yeah It's free and you don't have to pay a thing That's why it's free, yeah Alright, we're back at it, giving away free stuff That's why it's known as the fun and frivolous show, bat. We tried last week to no success However... We're giving it away again this week. The One Beer Grilling Book from Mike Lang, friend of show, fast and easy, and fresh recipes for great grilled meals you can make before you finish your first cold one. And rest assured and easy and comfortably knowing that Mike Lang himself took all the pictures on this book because he's a really good picture tape, or as we call him the business, photog. Castle Point Books puts it out. You can have it for free if you email me and in the subject line put Hey Grill Hey. You can win Mike Lang's new book. Once again, shoot me an email. First one in, in the subject line, Hey Grill Hey. You win the book. Don't put anything else in the email. Just send it. Otherwise, you're going to lose because you took too much time. Hey Grill Hey in the subject line, Greg at the BBQ. CentralShow.com. Good luck. 
Celebrating over 10 years of prolific and unparalleled live fire barbecue and grilling talk. And yes, it's still being done from Cleveland, Ohio. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. All right, welcome back. This portion of the show being brought to you by Smithfield. Head on over to smithfield.com throughout this grilling season of 2021 for recipes given to you by pitmasters like Chris Lilly, Darren Worth, and Ernest Cervantes. With mouth-watering flavor, no artificial ingredients, Smithfield fresh pork is quite simply some of the finest pork money can buy. Also go to smokinwithsmithfield.com if you're a competitor, if you're registered with the Committed Cooks program, and as you finish first in pork or ribs, you can list your brags right there at smokinwithsmithfield.com. All right. Um, where did we end last week? Going to get ready to read you a passage from the number one reference material of horse meat. Authored by Leon Kenny, of course. By the way, Diane Mee with an eagle eye. She did notice that my watch was upside down for video today. I forgot to, I wore it all day today. I don't usually wear it all day uh, on every Tuesday, but today I caught myself wearing it upside down and I apologize for that. But it's still a great looking watch. I'll tell you about it here in just a few moments. But first, we're going to do the latest passage from Processing, Cooking, and Buying Horse Meat for Human Consumption by Leon Kenny. So sit back and relax as I read you a passage entitled Composition and Cooking. As in all other cooking, there is no certain method for preparing horse meat that will inevitably end in success for all who try it. Some individual experimentation is necessary. Experimentation based, however, on a complete understanding of the basic differences in the composition of horse meat and beef. For consistently successful horse meat cookery can only be achieved when the cook understands how the composition of horse meat affects the cooking of it. According to a competitive analysis, horse meat contains 9.3% less water, 71% less fat than beef. Herein lies the root of the whole cooking problem. For with less moisture to begin with, horse meat has somewhat drier beef. And with less fat to hold the moisture in, horse meat has a tendency to lose more of its natural juices than beef during the cooking process. Worse still, when the juices escape and the meat fibers contract or shrink together, giving the meat a tough, rubbery consistency. Oh dear. Thus, the first rule of successful horse meat cookery, I love the word cookery, is the preservation of natural juices in the meat. There are, of course, many methods by which this preservation can be effected. And foremost among these is the careful control of heat temperatures. With few exceptions, horse meat must nearly always be cooked at extreme low temperatures. Too much heat 
and the tenderest pieces of the horse meat become dry, tough, and rubbery. In this respect alone, horse meat cannot be cooked like beef. Other suggestions for preserving the natural juices in the meat during the cooking process will all be discussed in the following sections on Cut and Cooking. Here we go! Next week. Stay tuned for page six. Tenderloin steaks of the horse meat thing. All right. Well, that was just a dandy passage. No doubt about it. By the way, we do have a winner of Mike Lang's book. Many of you tried to come in and many of you lost. But you know who didn't lose? Scott Rittenbaugh. Look at him. There you go, Scott. Now, to make it extra painful, send me a new email. And in the subject line, put Mike Lang book winner. And then send me your shipping info. And perhaps tomorrow or Friday, I'll get that book out to you. Please, uh, Scott, before you send me that email, and I'm only asking this because I got yelled at on social media. If you want me to sign, if you want me to sign Mike's book, like me autograph Mike's book, please put that in your email so I know to do that. Somebody, rule number one of the show applies, no names, please. I sent their book, and they didn't ask me to sign it, and I didn't. And boy, did they take me to task on social media. They sent it back for me to sign it so much. So so when I send that book out, I will send the Mike Lang book out. And Scott, as always, thank you for listening. Congratulations on your huge win. That's a free book for you right there. All right, now let's go ahead and catch up one more time as we get ready to close the show down for this evening a little late. A Green Mountain Grills, that's right. Providing you no less than two lines to choose from. A choice line, which is right up the alley for people that want to save a few bucks. They don't need all this technical hubbubaloo, internal meat probes, Wi-Fi connectivity. I'm going to stay by the grill because I'm a man or a woman. Or whatever you are. I'm going to stay by the cooker. I like it. I don't need that schmancy stuff. The choice line is right up your alley. Jim Bowie is the biggest. Daniel Boone's the middle size. Can't go wrong with either of them. And you're saving ducats. Look at you. Now, maybe you're a little bit more successful in life. You love the technological advances that things have been bringing you over these last many years. You might want the Prime Plus line, cooker friend. Same size as Jim Bowie and the Daniel Boone. But on this cooker, you get a little bit more of a robust chassis build. You get a front uh, front folding. Or you get a front table on the cooker. You get peek-in windows on the main cooking chamber and the pellet hopper. You get not one, but two internal meat probes. Wi-Fi connectivity. And you can control it all from an app. Primeline. Both the Prime and the Choice line can accommodate your pizza oven insert. And there's a travel one as well called the Davy Crockett. If you want to take it on your next tailgate or summer softball tournament or whatever you're into, you can take it along with you. You can plug it right into the 12-volt outlet of your car. You can use the clips and clip it onto a car battery. 
and you can use a standard outlet if you want to. All different ways to power the sink. And you're not sacrificing an incredible amount of capacity for portability, so don't worry about that either. Plus, it's wood-fired pellet awesomeness. GreenMountainGrills.com. That's GreenMountainGrills.com. They have a dealer network. So find the dealer nearest you, visit them, get educated, then buy one and be successful right out of the gate. And you know what? Don't go on any of these stupid Facebook pages. I've had it up to here with them. They're so stupid. I hate this grill. I hate that. Shut up. Just learn how to use it. Ask me. I'll be your Facebook. GreenMountainGrills.com. We are back to wrap the show right after this. Stick around. Be right back. Whole packers, full racks, legs and thighs, injecting butts. If you've never heard this before, you might think you found the best triple X show ever. Let's get back to the most homoerotic host out there today, Craig Rimpy. That's right. Your homoerotic host right here. Brought to you by Vortic Watches, a small batch custom watch manufacturing and vintage restoration company located in northern Colorado. They take antique American pocket watches and turn them into wrist watches, just like this one. Their mission, preserve and enhance the legacy of manufacturing excellence in America. In order to do that, they combine traditional and cutting-edge technology to create unique, quality, functional timepieces with exceptional value. Here's the best part. Every watch that they make is unique and one-of-a-kind. Vortic founded on the motto that America wasn't assembled, it was built. Check out VorticWatches.com for more information or to try and buy one. And they go quickly every day. By the way, if I might tell you, the best part of showing this watch off, let me see if I can get any type of camera angle for this. No, not there. Let me pull up this interface and see if this works. I know I got one somewhere. Is, where'd it go? I just saw my hand. There it is. Is this. This is the coolest part of the watch right here. This is what you call the movement. This is actually what makes the front of the watch go. And it's got a full exhibition case back, as you can see right here. You can see the escapement wheels running. Uh, the escapement wheel is powered by the mainspring. Uh, you power the mainspring by using uh, the crown right here. And this is a, uh, a mechanical wind, so you do have to watch this wine. Uh, you do have to wind this watch every day, or any of them that they sell. But taking it off and handing it to somebody, and then having them turn it over, and getting to see the movement on the back of this thing is so neat. And it's not there. We go, and to see the escapement wheels running down there, it's seventeen joule movement. I mean, it is so cool. And this is like a hundred year old watch right here. It could be more than 100 years. Very cool. Alright, that's going to do it. All the way back in the first hour, we were talking with Memphis and May, most current champ, Myron Mixon, his fifth win at Memphis and May, his sixth hog win, his fifth overall grand championship. He's now tied with Big Bob Gibson's for five overall wins. After Myron Mixon, we had first-time guest of the show, Bill Oakley, a professional and respected fast food food reviewer. However, a far more accomplished academic and professional 
writer for The Simpsons. You know The Simpsons. For any number of years, uh, multiple Emmy Awards won, a Harvard Lampoon. The list goes on. Great stuff. Bill was great. Good, good insight. And did rate, much to my surprise, the Popeye's Chicken Sando from 1 to 10, 1 being the worst thing he's ever eaten in his life, and 10 being the best out of all foods ever as a 7. By the way, folks, I still have not had the Popeye's Chicken Sandwich. I haven't. He might motivate me to try it. Second hour, we enjoyed extended segment with Susie Bullock from Hey Grill Hey. We talked about her time at Memphis in May, and then we had a fairly in-depth discussion about bringing products to market. So if you're somebody who makes a rub or a sauce and you think this is your year, this is your time, if you didn't hear this interview, but you're somebody who's friends with somebody who wants to do that, send them this interview so they can hear this great info that Susie had. I mean, there are a few that are as successful as she is within this realm doing what she does. So the info is advice, and, or the the advice is solid, and the info top-notch. HeyGrillHey.com, her website. A big show planned for you next week, of course. We have the first hour of Barbecue Media. Robert F. Moss rejoins the show, then Derek Ridges in his regular segment. And then the second hour, we have the Embedded Correspondence, where we will be hashing it out for our picks for the Barbecue Hall of Fame of 2021. And then we will have round two of the American Idol Barbecue Central Show edition. Who knows what's going to happen there? Until next Tuesday at 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, this is your program host and proud U.S. American... Greg Rempe saying September 11th, 2001. I will never forget. And good night now. This is Brian Mayer, host of Hot Sauce Weekly. And you are listening to BCRN. All barbecue and grilling all the time.